Specialty Story, session number 205. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Jennifer Dominguez, an obstetric anesthesiologist, and we talk all about obstetric anesthesiology and why it's even a thing. And it's a great question because we are getting into a world of very, very, very subspecialization of medicine. I constantly joke that we're going to have hand surgeons in the future, right? Orthopedic hand surgeons in the future that only operate on left pinky fingers. That's their specialty. That's what they operate on. Not the right pinky finger, but only the left pinky finger. And we're going to talk to Dr. Dominguez all about obstetric anesthesiology and why it's an amazing specialty to go into. We start the conversation by talking to Dr. Dominguez about why she chose obstetric anesthesiology. I actually did not know anything about anesthesiology when I was thinking about medical school or even in the early part of medical school for, I would say, at least the first couple of years. I went to medical school because I really liked women's health and was passionate about women's health. And I thought I would become an obstetrician. Mm. I had done research in reproductive endocrinology prior to medical school and had been very interested in that as a potential specialty. And then when I rotated through my third year clerkships in medical school, I realized that I really did not like operating. I really liked the environment of the operating room and the type of problem solving, but I didn't actually enjoy operating. Wow. And obstetricians are surgeons. They do a lot of surgery in most of their you know, subspecialties. They work in the operating room. And I just, that part of it really didn't appeal to me, but I really liked the OR. And so I started exploring anesthesiology, which is not something I knew a lot about. When I first got into it, I thought I would be giving up women's health. And that was one of the major uh, considerations for me in potentially choosing anesthesiology is that I didn't realize that there was a way to go um, into women's health through anesthesiology. And uh, only through exploring the subspecialties of anesthesiology did I learn that I could actually go on and do a fellowship in obstetric anesthesiology. And so that's what I ultimately did. I did that at Duke. And ended up staying on faculty there and have been there for almost 10 years as an obstetric anesthesiologist. Wow. I, I think the first question that, that comes to my mind and may come to others is we, we continue to see this very subspecialization of medicine. And we have, mm-hmm. we have cardiac anesthesiology and obstetric anesthesiology. And uh, why do we need specific subspecialties in anesthesiology? Why can't a general anesthesiologist do obstetric cases? Well, our anesthesiology residency program is four years. So compared mm-hmm. to some of the other, you know, specialists in that go through internal medicine, for example, that then do a three-year fellowship, 
our training is still relatively shorter. And when you add on fellowship, you're looking at five years. So it's um, still shorter than, for example, pulmonologist, which would take six years, you know, doing internal medicine for three and then three years of um, pulmonary critical care fellowship. Um, So in terms of kind of the overall number of years in anesthesiology, it's really not that different than a lot of other um, specialties. Uh, The patients, however, are getting sicker. You know, I think our population is getting sicker, at least in obstetrics. Um, We see that patients are getting older, patients are getting sicker. Maternal mortality in the U.S. for a developed country has been increasing um, compared to a lot of other developed countries where it's actually been decreasing. Mm -hmm. And that's a really concerning signal. And um, one of the ways in which our specialty um, has responded to that is by training more obstetric anesthesiologists that have the knowledge and experience, um, not only of critical care from their anesthesiology residency, but also in, you know, not deep knowledge of obstetrics and taking care of critically ill, high risk pregnant women. Mm. Interesting. Okay. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around obstetric anesthesiology? Well, you brought one of them up in the, your previous question. Um, we hear a lot of folks who come to do fellowship in obstetric anesthesiology are told, you know, by general anesthesiologists that, oh, you don't need to do fellowship to do obstetric anesthesiology. And historically, that has been true, although there is a movement, um, you know, kind of for more representation by um, in the specialty by ACGME fellowship trained um, OB anesthesiologist. Mm-hmm. This fellowship wasn't always available. So the ACGME um, approved this fellowship in 2012. So historically, a lot of people have done obstetric anesthesiology without a fellowship. And, um, you know, many of those people um, are great obstetric anesthesiologists and provide great care to their patients. They just didn't have a fellowship available to them when they trained. Um, however, you know, um, the, um, there are other people kind of naysayers out in the world who say you don't need, you know, a fellowship to, um, to do this, um, to put in epidurals, but our specialty is a lot more than putting in epidurals. Uh, we, you know, take care of some really, really sick moms. And I think we add a lot of value to their care. Mm. Yeah. Good, good, good. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good obstetric anesthesiologist? I think you have to be uh, able to multitask. So a labor floor can be really chaotic and we um, are managing a lot of different kinds of problems and a lot of different issues at the same time. And so you have to be able to multitask, uh, triage, uh, utilize resources and allocate them appropriately. Um, I think being flexible is an important trait because Sometimes, you know, you might be doing one thing and something more important might come up and you have to sort of flex and, you know, figure out how to take care of the other thing that's more pressing. Um, You have to be able to be a really good communicator. So there's a lot going on with a lot of different um, types of uh, medical providers. So we work um, a lot with labor nurses uh, who are caring for laboring patients and then also patients going for surgeries on the labor floor, like C-sections and cerclages and tubal ligations. So we have to communicate with nurses a lot. We also have to communicate with obstetricians and um, we have to communicate with maternal fetal medicine specialists 
neonatologists, um, different subspecialists who get consulted um, in the care of pregnant women. Um, and so we are doing a lot of communication between different subspecialties and um, kind of navigating all of that. So I think those are some of the things that make for a good obstetric <laughs> anesthesiologist. Yeah, very interesting. So uh, a normal question that I ask is what types of patients do you treat? But it seems obvious that uh, an obstetric <laughs> anesthesiologist would be taking care of, of pregnant patients uh, who need some sort of anesthesia. Um, outside of a typical OR setting, what sort of interaction may an obstetric anesthesiologist have with pregnant patients? So we do uh, labor analgesia. We provide labor, labor analgesia on, uh, at a birthing center. And so um, we meet patients when they come in laboring or when they come in for an induction of labor and talk to them about analgesic options for their labor. And that could be an epidural, that could be a combined spinal epidural. Every once in a while, sometimes that's a single shot spinal. And we also talk to them about other non-neuraxial options like a PCA, where they might actually be getting IV fentanyl during their labor. Um, and so uh, those are some of the things that we do for patients who are not having surgery per se. We also help with operative delivery. So some patients have um, need to, you know, requires forceps to deliver their babies. And uh, so we can provide analgesia for those types of procedures, operative deliveries. Um, and so those are some of the ways in which we interact with patients. We also do consultations. So we meet patients while they're pregnant, but before the, um, you know, significantly before their delivery, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, depending on how complex their medical history is. And so we meet them in clinic. Uh, just like any other consultant and have a consultation with them where we talk to them about some of their medical issues and how that might interface with their anesthetic care. Um, and we talk to them about, you know, different options for their anesthetic care and help them understand better what to expect. And then we make some recommendations to the um, maternal fetal medicine specialists who refer these patients to us. Yeah. Okay. What does a typical day look like for you? Well, I don't work on labor and delivery every single day. We have a team of obstetric anesthesiologists that works in my hospital. And so one of us is always covering during the day and one of us is always covering during the night. It's a pretty demanding um, day when you're on labor and delivery. And so it starts around 6.30 in the morning and we start with reports. So we get handoff from the night anesthesiologist and learn about all the patients that they cared for overnight and the patients that are currently laboring, and then find out about surgeries that are upcoming for the day. We talk to our team and strategize and plan for all the work that we have to do that day. And then we start taking care of the patients and we do a mixture of uh, cesarean deliveries, uh, labor analgesia, cerclages, tubal ligations, and also you know, take care of any critically ill women who might be having a postpartum hemorrhage or um, some other kind of acute medical issue on the labor floor. We help with those things. And that day pretty much goes like that um, until about six o'clock at night when I'm done for the day and I hand off to the night anesthesiologist. Sometimes I'm the night anesthesiologist and we, with a more limited team, uh, provide similar services on the labor floor overnight but we don't have any scheduled cases overnight. Mm -hmm. And so uh, over the night, we just take care of emergencies and uh, laboring patients. 
Yes. And then, those those when, darn babies come whenever they want. <laughs> that's right. We cover 365 days a year and uh, regardless of holidays and weekends. Yeah. Okay. So talk about for for a student or a resident listening to this who is like, yes, I, I would love to work with uh, pregnant patients and and do that sort of care. I love anesthesia. Uh, but that's not all I want to do. Does a obstetric anesthesiologist have to only do obstetric cases? No. So I do a variety of general anesthesia as well. My division in my hospital is called women's anesthesia. And so I take care of a lot of women with reproductive cancers. So uh, women um, who are having gynecological oncology surgeries like hysterectomies and having their ovaries out for ovarian cancer, care for them. And in a lot of those cases, I get to do epidurals uh, to help not with labor, but with um, post-op pain. So we use our skills that we uh, hone and get very, very good at on the labor floor uh, to help patients who are undergoing surgery with their post-op pain. And then we care for them intraoperatively for some pretty complex surgeries some of the time. I also care for men who are undergoing urologic surgery, like prostatectomies for cancer. And I do a lot of robotic surgery. So with our Da Vinci robot, I do a lot of surgeries uh, for urological gynecology surgeries uh, and uh, um, other types of um, gynecologic surgery and even um, other urologic surgery for men. So I do a lot of general anesthesia for those types of cases. And um, obstetric anesthesiologists you know, work in a variety of, of settings doing other types of general anesthesia as well. Nice. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? I do. I have a pretty busy academic practice. So, you know, in addition to the clinical work that I do, I have a couple of administrative roles. So I'm director of a fellowship program. So I actually run the fellowship program in obstetric anesthesiology at my hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I train fellows every year, which is really rewarding. I work with residents as well, and I give lectures and teach in the simulation lab in addition to working with them clinically. I uh, am the chair for diversity and inclusion for my department. So I do um, a number of initiatives um, to work on advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in our department and in the School of Medicine you know, as a whole. And I am really involved with societies outside of uh, my hospital nationally, um, for obstetric anesthesiology and also for sleep medicine, because I have an interest in uh, sleep medicine in pregnancy. Hmm. And so I work on society level um, on a variety of initiatives. And um, so I stay really busy, but I also have a personal life that, um, you know, is busy as well. I have children and my husband's a physician and I have a dog um, and I have t time for um, a little bit of time for hobbies and <laughs> recreation. Um, that's, that's awesome. The dog, the dog is, uh, what, what takes up all the time. Um, right. <laughs> so talk about the, the fellowship as the, the mm -hmm. program director for the fellowship there, what does fellowship look like for someone coming in? So it's a one-year fellowship after anesthesiology residency. So our, uh, fellows have done a four-year residency in anesthesiology. They apply in their third year, so PGY3 year, when there's what's called a clinical anesthesia year number two. And um, they apply through a match system, and then they come to us 
um, after their residency for a one-year fellowship. And in that fellowship, they spend about seven months um, spread out over the entire year on the labor and delivery floor, caring for the sickest moms um, on our floor. They take care of the most complex cases. Um, things They take care of conditions like placenta accreta spectrum, which is when the placenta actually invades kind of like a cancer through the wall of the uterus and sometimes into adjacent structures like the bladder or the bowel. And it causes a lot of problems because as you imagine, the placenta has to come out eventually. And mm. so it's not, it's not pretty when it comes out. And so we um, help with cases like that where we anticipate a lot of bleeding and we have to work with other subspecialists like interventional radiologists and gynecological oncologists and MFM specialists and neonatologists to keep mom and baby safe during that really complex delivery. And so our fellows do those kinds of cases. They also um, run our consultation clinic. So they every week see a number of patients who are very high risk, who are going to be getting care at our hospital, um, you know, for their for their labor and delivery. And um, they also rotate through neonatology and learn how to resuscitate neonates mm -hmm. because sometimes we're called upon to help with that um, in emergencies. In a high resource hospital, generally obstetric anesthesiologists aren't as involved with neonates, but in a lower resource hospital, sometimes neonatologists might be on call at home and a baby, premature baby might be born and or even a term baby that needs um, extra care. And so um, an obstetric anesthesiologist might be the only person available to um, with that skill set to help resuscitate that baby. So um, we are trained in neonatal resuscitation. And we also rotate with our colleagues in maternal fetal medicine to learn more about their specialty. And we, you know, we actually go to clinic with them and um, around on the floor with them as well. Wow. So um, they also get point of care ultrasound training. So our fellows uh, learn how to do um, diagnostic point of care ultrasound of the heart, lung, and um, stomach to help um, guide their clinical decision making. And um, they do research too. They do about three months of research. And um, we can, you know, sometimes they do electives in transfusion medicine, which is a really big part of what we do is managing hemorrhage. And so it's helpful to know more about blood bank and about what our colleagues do there. So we can work better with them and more effectively with them. And then some of our fellows rotate through cardiology or even pulmonary hypertension team. Mm. For, for the, the, the fellows going through the program, Mm -hmm. um, or, or those applying to the program, rather, what are you looking for in their application to to go, ooh, I, I like this person? Yeah, so we're looking for someone who has demonstrated a commitment to obstetric anesthesia in their residency in some way. Um, a lot of our fellows have done research projects in obstetric anesthesiology during their residency or have done really interesting quality improvement projects. Some of our fellows have um, worked abroad and actually done service projects in other countries, working with um, in a maternity hospital in another country. Um, a lot of our fellows have an interest in a specific interest in some aspect of obstetric anesthesia. It might be something like health disparities, helping to um, you know bridge the gap in health disparities in maternal care, and that's their you know kind of career goal and 
they have some demonstrated um, evidence of uh, accomplishment in that area. And that's what, you know, they are looking for further training to help them kind of get to the next level in their career. Um, and then we also just looking for people also who've demonstrated excellence in residency and medical school um, through their clinical rotations and, um, you know, and, and through other initiatives and projects as well. Yeah. Do you see any complications with step one going pass fail for your kind of look at, at students or applicants? You know, I wouldn't say that those numbers have actually been very indicative of, you know, who's going to perform well in fellowship. From my perspective as a program director and looking at a lot of applications over a number of years, I wouldn't say that test scores necessarily predict who's going to do well in fellowship. Yeah. So I I don't see any issue with it. Yeah. I wouldn't either. (laughs) It's very, very silly. We have these tests out there that are supposed to tell us how good of a doctor we're supposed to be. Um, Once, uh, once a student is, in their fellowship, right? They're they're hanging out with you, learning obstetric anesthesiology. Are there more ways to subspecialize after that? Or you've kind of, you're at the end? There are more ways. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're just starting to um, develop those ways. But um, I am actually getting um, really excited because we have recently accepted uh, one of our own residents who's going to be staying with us to do a second fellowship. She's going to do obstetric anesthesiology and critical care medicine. So she's going to do two fellowships back to back as a two-year cycle at our institution. Mm -hmm. And she's going to become essentially an an obstetric anesthesiology intensivist. So she will be, have a special skill set in critical care um, and um, be able to provide care for pregnant women um, on the labor floor, but also in the ICU. Wow. Um, we have um, someone like that on faculty already at um, our institution who's, you know, long out of training, but, you know, who is, um, is an associate professor. And we have a number of people across the country who are choosing that path. It's um, There's not a large number of them, but there are um, a handful of people across the country who are, who are kind of leading the way in that um, in that area. There is um, another subset of folks um, who we are also um, actually have an upcoming training doing uh, obstetric anesthesia and then uh, cardiothoracic anesthesiology. And so that's a two-year cycle, two fellowships back-to-back. Um, that person will be board certified in transesophageal echo when they finish their cardiothoracic anesthesiology um, fellowship and also, you know, then um, be trained in obstetric anesthesiology. And those folks are uniquely positioned to care for mothers with cardiac disease and pregnancy, which is a really um, complex um, comorbidity to have during pregnancy. And so uh, we actually have a faculty member as well who's done that training and who um, has sub-sub-specialized in that way. And there are a handful of people across the country, although they're rare, but, um, but they're extremely useful because Duke is actually a referral center, you know, for um, mothers with cardiac disease and pregnancy. So we get a really high volume of these cases. Wow. Yeah, I have two, two friends um, that have both needed heart transplants after their pregnancies. So it's, oh my it's, gosh, it's wow. obviously, it's obviously needed out there. So it's very yeah. interesting. Have you seen yeah. more need for the critical care with pregnancy with COVID? Have, have we seen that? Yes, definitely. Yeah. That's one of the areas in which, um, sadly we've seen 
a number of women need ICU care during pregnancy. Um, and a lot of those women have been completely healthy, you know, prior to, um, you know, acquiring COVID and then unfortunately going on to have respiratory failure and needing respiratory support. Yeah. The, the vast majority of women have, um, you know, we've seen a lot of women with COVID, obviously, um, through the pandemic, a lot of women have done very well, um, and been able to, um, you know, not required, um, critical care or had to go on ECMO, um, thankfully, but we have had a number of women who, um, unfortunately have needed that kind of care. For the osteopathic student or resident listening to this, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias that may be out there? Well, gosh, I don't have that bias. So if you come to my program, you won't encounter it. <laughs> I've had um, a number. I've actually just had a DO fellow last year um, who did really, you know, was an excellent fellow. I've had, um, I have a lot of DO colleagues. Um, including that person I mentioned who um, is dual trained in obstetric anesthesiology and critical care medicine, who's on faculty with us nice. as a DO. Um, so I have a lot of great colleagues that I work with on a daily basis who are DOs. I don't really distinguish between DOs and MDs, you know, in my work. Um, and I consider, you know, DO applicants um, just the same way that I do MD applicants. Nice. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into obstetric anesthesiology? Um, I guess I think I would have just reassured myself that I chose the right <laughs> career because I really like my work. Yeah. Um, I really, you know, I find it extremely gratifying and, you know, obviously you never know what's really going to be like until you get into and, you know, practice as an attending and, you know, what that would, what that will actually be like. Um, but it's, it's actually an extremely rewarding career. It's, I get to take care of women and alleviate pain at a time where they're, you know, there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, pain, discomfort, anxiety, and I get to help with all of that, which is extremely rewarding. And then I get to sometimes save lives. I get to save babies um, who are in distress and get, you know, them delivered quickly and safely. I get to intervene in maternal hemorrhages and, you know, save lives that way. It's a, it's a really, really gratifying job. Yeah. I think it makes a big impact on patients and it makes a big impact on families. Yeah. Um, what do you like the most about your job? Um, I think that I get to talk to my patients more than a lot of anesthesiologists. I, um, I think we get to connect personally with our patients because they are, a lot of them are laboring. And so we get to check on them throughout the day and see how they're doing and talk with them. And then during C-sections, our patients are also awake. So we don't do general anesthesia for C-sections unless we absolutely have to in an emergency. And so our patients get spinals and epidurals and they're awake and talking and completely alert during their surgery, which is really different than most of the other types of surgery that I do. Yeah. Uh, it's actually really fun. And it's a huge privilege to be able to be with families when their um, you know, child comes into the world. And even when there's bad outcomes and, you know, un and unfortunate things happen or babies are sick when they're born and they require, you know, advanced levels of care, it's still a, you know, it's still a tremendous privilege to be with people during that time and to help them. What do you like the least? I don't like working at night. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like staying, I don't like staying up all night, but it's just a necessary aspect of what I do. There's really, you know, like you said, babies come at all hours of the day and yeah. night. 
And uh, there's no real way around it other than to staff our unit with, um, you know, attending anesthesiologists just like we do during the day at night so that our patients can get the best care possible. Yeah. And so it's just a necessary part of what I do, but it's not my favorite part of what I do. <laughs> now, when, when you're overnight, is it, is it after working during the day as well, or, or you have specific shifts for the night? We, at my institution, we have specific shifts for the night. We've yeah. uh, actually phased out 24 hour shifts for the most part in our um, institution um, because it's not the safest way to work. Honestly, yeah. I've done that in my career. I did it during residency a lot and I don't enjoy it. I've done it occasionally in emergencies when, you know, someone got sick or something like that, but it's not, um, I don't think it's the safest way to work. And so I get to come in at my, for the night shift and then go home in the morning. Yeah. What major changes do you see coming to obstetric anesthesiology, whether that's new technology, medications, uh, CRNAs roles? What's, what's, what's changing coming up? So CRNAs are already part of our care team in obstetric anesthesiology. And, and you know that varies depending on the institution, the care setting, in terms of whether they actually place epidurals and spinals or whether they kind of work in conjunction with an anesthesiologist that does the procedures. Um, but that's not, I don't foresee that changing, um, tremendously. I do, um, think that more and more obstetric anesthesiologists are going to be trained in point of care ultrasound. Um, and so that's something that we are training all new fellows in right now. And there's a big national push to expand the training at point of care ultrasound. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a really useful tool when you're trying to make a clinical decision in an emergency and you may not have access to a cardiologist who can come down and do a formal scan. And so we're not trying to replace cardiologists and their skill set by any stretch of the imagination. By comparison, the skills that you know we're teaching and that we use um, just to make help make, guide clinical decision making are very basic, um, but um, they can be extremely useful in managing, let's say, uh, a hemorrhage. So, if a patient is has low blood pressure, um, is it because their myocardium is stunned and they're you know they have a cardiomyopathy, um, or is it because they actually just have low um, blood volume and they're you know they bled a lot and they need more more blood? or more fluids. Um, and you can kind of figure that out really quickly by just looking at the heart. And so those are the kind of ways in which we use point of care ultrasound. And I think that's going to be as we, the technology develops and as we get these machines become more affordable and they can be utilized in a greater variety of settings, um, and people develop the skills to use them. I think that'll be one way in which, um, our specialty changes. Um, unfortunately, I don't think our patients are going to get any healthier the way it's looking, at least in the short term. Um, and so I think we're going to be called upon to provide more and more critical care, which is, um, you know, I think necessary um, in order to respond to that, um, you know, change in, in our patient population. Um, I do think that um, we will have a board exam um, in the next five to 10 years. That's something that's kind of working that is already in the works uh, nationally, and I'm involved with that effort. Um, we will at some point uh, have a board certification process for obstetric anesthesiology, but currently we don't. Nice. Um, those are some things that I see kind of coming down yeah. down that way. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be an obstetric anesthesiologist? Yeah, absolutely, I would. For the student or resident listening to this, thinking about obstetric anesthesiology in their future, what final words of wisdom do you have for them? 
I would say go for it. It's a great career. It's extremely rewarding. It's there's lots of jobs out there. They're in high demand. And so I wouldn't hesitate if it's something that you're interested in and passionate about. Um, it's an extremely rewarding job that you won't regret pursuing. All right. So there you have it. Again, Dr. Jennifer Dominguez, an obstetric anesthesiologist. If you would like some more information about obstetric anesthesiology, check out soap.org. Yeah, soap. S-O-A-P.org. That's the Society for Obstetric Anesthesia and Perinatology. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.